Welcome to the 230th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, and I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion in partnership with the LePage Center for History in the Public Interest of Villanova University. I will be talking with Britt Dahlberg and Jessica Martucci about their project, Beyond Better, Experiences of Recovery, Disability, and Politics in Pandemics. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live, Twitch, and Periscope. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please do feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, March 1st, 2021, there are 2,536,865 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 514,216 deaths reported in the United States and 1,605 deaths from COVID-19 reported in South Korea. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, South Korean activists renew call for deinstitutionalizing people with disabilities amid the coronavirus. This appeared on PRI's The World, December 2nd, 2020, by Jason Struther, and with reporting by Kwon Min Jin. When Chu Kyung-jin, who lives in Seoul, South Korea, first heard about the coronavirus outbreak at a local psychiatric ward in February of 2020, it triggered a visceral reaction. Health authorities say the cluster afflicted all 102 patients and led to eight deaths. All I could think about was that it could have been me, said 51-year-old Chu, who for much of the past two decades has lived in a sprawling institutional care facility with hundreds of other people with disabilities. Chu is paralyzed from below his neck, the result of a 1997 motorbike accident. He says his then wife abandoned him at a group home, and for years he thought he'd spend the rest of his life locked up inside one of these centers. He now lives with a full-time caregiver in a subsidized apartment in Seoul. Chu says he hasn't gone out much this year because he's worried about catching COVID-19, but he thinks he's still better off here than back in the institution. In that kind of place, no matter how you try to protect yourself, you could still catch the coronavirus. Since the pandemic's start, international rights groups and public health advocates have made the same warnings, and following a string of COVID-19 deaths at a South Korean psychiatric hospital, rights activists there are again calling for these centers to close. They say these facilities were already dehumanizing and are now even more dangerous. In April of 2020, as the first wave of the coronavirus spread across many countries, the United Nations cautioned that people with disabilities who live in residential care facilities face heightened risk of infection due to underlying health conditions 
and inability to socially distance. And they're more likely to experience, quote, human rights violations such as neglect, restraint, isolation, and violence, unquote. Official data on how the pandemic has impacted this global population is scarce, but reports in the United States and UK media, as well as from international advocacy organizations, suggest a disproportionate infection and death rate. In South Korea, the pandemic has added new momentum to a movement that has for years pushed for the complete deinstitutionalization of people with physical, developmental, and mental health disabilities from congregate centers. Rights activists there say the country's institutional care system already denies its residents opportunities to be active members of society and now makes their lives even more precarious. The Korean government has recently implemented new policies that could lead to less reliance on institutions to care for those with disabilities. But some say reforming the residential care system alone isn't enough to address the greater challenge of making society more inclusive. For Chu, having the power to take oneself out of the care system is the first step toward inclusion. He says life at his former institution was dictated by routine. He had no control over the most basic of daily tasks, like when to wake up or what to eat. In 2016, he was finally discharged, in part thanks to new disability rights laws, but largely because of his own determination. Institutions need to be closed. People with and without disabilities should live together in the community. Around 25,000 people with a physical or cognitive disability live in assisted living centers, government data shows. But unlike Chu, who could advocate for his own release, many others cannot. That's according to Seo Won Sun at the Korea Disabled People's Development Institute. He says most institutionalized people have a developmental impairment and cannot make that decision for themselves. They'd need a relative or guardian to sign off but others are completely cut off from their families. Some relatives go as far as to change their addresses and telephone numbers so they cannot be found, he explained. This is the tragic history of disability, he said. Theo says many Korean families continue to send loved ones with disabilities to long-term care centers because the cost for at-home care could be prohibitively expensive and government support for assistive services is lacking. Some other observers say this financial pressure underscores the stigma of disability in Korea. People who cannot demonstrate their economic productivity are regarded as useless, said Byun Jae Won, policy director at Solidarity Against Disability Discrimination, a group in Seoul that assists people who've been discharged from the long-term care system and offers job training and educational courses. Families feel burdened by disabled children children that the child makes them unable to survive in the jungle, Yun said. This is why some think it's safer to keep their disabled children in institutions. And for some families, like his, a disabled child is an embarrassment. My mother always told me that I'm ashamed to the family, said Yun, who uses a pair of crutches while walking. Yun, age 27, said that he contracted a spinal disease as an infant, but was never institutionalized though he speculates his mother, whom he no longer speaks with, might have preferred that. She'd say, I want you to just stay at home and be invisible. After decades of relying on the private sector and charities to care for people with severe disabilities, the Korean government is doing more to help those living outside the system. 
Seoul has increased support for independent living and last year launched a program that integrates private housing with medical services in communities. But Zhang He-yong, a National Assembly lawmaker from the Progressive Justice Party, suggests that instead of regarding deinstitutionalization as just getting people out of institutions, efforts should also focus on preventing more people from going in. Complete social integration is the only real solution to the institutional care system, he says. She says. She says those changes should start with desegregating the educational system. Not everyone has experience living with someone who has a disability, she said. If children with and without disabilities study together in the same classes, then as they grow up, they will think it's natural to be together. Improving social integration also requires bringing down economic and employment barriers that prevent many people with disabilities from living independently, some advocates say. Only 34.9% of people with disabilities have jobs according to a survey published by Statistics Korea earlier in 2020. And there's no law that requires employers to pay the minimum wage to disabled workers. Some parents worry that their children who have a developmental disability will be left behind. So last year, a small group of families from Incheon, a city west of the capital, created jobs for their kids. Standing behind the Jiendo Cafe's counter, Baek Jae Wook, placed freshly ground beans into the portafilter of a commercial espresso machine. While the coffee brewed, he scooped ice into a plastic cup and poured the Americano over the cubes. Beck, age 15, is one of five teens with autism who've earned barista certifications here. While he's eager to show off his degree, which is framed and rests on a bookshelf in the cafe, Beck shied away from answering direct questions. Hong Ju Yan, his mother, says the cafe isn't just a barista training program. It's a kind of therapy for these children. A cafe is one of the most interpersonal kinds of business that someone can work in, said 52-year-old Hong. Here, my son can meet people who aren't in his family, take their orders, listen to them, and improve his ability to communicate. And the community can get to know people with autism, she said. Hong says she never considered sending Baek to live in a care home. She speculates that some parents institutionalize their children because they don't realize their capabilities and also because some feel uneasy about having a child with a disability. I'm not embarrassed by my son, Hong said. I tell other parents of kids with autism that they shouldn't feel ashamed about their child's disability. Okay, I'd like to turn to our conversation for today, one I've been looking forward to a great deal. Let me introduce my guest to you. Britt Dahlberg completed a PhD in anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania. Before the Beyond Better project, she co-designed and led the five-year REACH Ambler project to use ethnography, oral history, and theater to open up spaces for public dialogue about environmental risk and uncertainty in social and historical context. Britt recently took up the role of director of research of the Center for Humanism, Professionalism, Ethics, and Law at Cooper Medical School of Rowan University. My second guest is Jessica Marcucci. Jessica completed a PhD in the history and sociology of science and later earned a master's degree in bioethics at the University of Pennsylvania. Prior to launching Beyond Better, she spent three years leading an oral history project that documented the experiences of disabled scientists. Britt Dahlberg and Jessica Marcucci, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. A pleasure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot. 
I'd like to start out by finding a little bit about how your previous work intersects with the pandemic. You know, for some people I've talked to, they were already on a track of research that the pandemic, um, it made sense for them to immediately turn to that. For others, they've really restructured their whole careers in this last year. I'd kind of like to find out how your previous work looks to you now in the context of this pandemic. Jessica, maybe I'll start with you on that, if it's okay. Yeah, sure. Well, as uh, as you said in, in your introduction, um, I had been working on an oral history-based project that was examining the lives and experiences of disabled scientists. Um, and I'd started that work in 2016. And prior to that, I had been doing um, most of my work. I'm a historian of medicine, um, so most of my work was in history of medicine, but I'd been looking at, um, my first book project was on the history of breastfeeding. Um, and I've been doing, uh, my second project was, is, is still ongoing and, and is looking at um, the role of Catholic healthcare in the US health system. Um, and so the science and disability project was a little bit of a departure for me, um, but through that work, I became steeped in disability studies really for the first time. And when that project was suddenly brought to a halt um, because, of, because of the pandemic and because of layoffs at the organization where I was working, um, I kind of had all of this um, momentum and experience built up around thinking about disability and, you know, doing work in terms of story collecting. Um, and I'm sure Britt will, will have something to add here too, because this project really grew out of our shared experience of being laid off at the same time um, and coming from a place where we had been working together quite a lot in terms of trying to find ways to take some of this oral history stuff that I was doing and turn it into programming um, and really uh, use it as a way to think critically about and transform the ways that we were producing content at our organization and also, you know, um, thinking about how to change the, the structure and culture of the organization that we were a part of to make it more accessible, to respond to the stories of exclusion and inaccessibility that I was hearing about in my interviews. And so, when the layoff happened uh, last summer, we were talking a lot in the days and weeks that followed about, you know, we see that there's this discourse happening out there around the pandemic, and there's just not a there's not enough being talked about in sort of mainstream discourse around, you know, what does this mean in terms of disability, right? We're seeing a lot of um, we were seeing a lot of dichotomies being thrown around. Basically, you know, if you get COVID, you either die or you survive. Um, there was no sort of uh, nuance, especially in the beginning around like, well, what does it actually look like to survive a COVID infection? Um, and it was really early, you know, last summer that we were already just starting to hear things trickle out about people who were having long-term consequences or long-term symptoms. Um, 
And so we thought, you know, it seems like this work that we've been doing around disability and storytelling and oral history, um, you know, there's kind of a need here to do that kind of work right now and to do it around the pandemic because um, there, we just weren't really seeing that kind of stuff out there at that point, so. It's unfair at a number of levels, and I'm sorry that you lost the position in the middle of the, of the pandemic or at any time, but it's also compounded by the loss of the importance of the research that you were doing and the loss uh, that you were describing about the feedback into the institutional framework within the institution that's supporting this kind of work. And I, it's going to take us some time to unravel you know, the story that you're telling is one that's being understood, at, at, I think, at many different institutions across the United States, some of which have let people go that they shouldn't have. And in other cases, people are still there, but they're, they're struggling to bring those research findings back into the structure of the way the place works, that is to accommodate, yeah. which we now know they can do. <laughs> um, even though they said for many years, maybe they couldn't. Um, we'll talk about all these themes more. Jessica, thanks for that introduction mm -hmm. to your um, finding this project. Britt, same question to you. Right. Yeah, I think, um, I've always worked, my background's in anthropology. I was drawn to that when first came across it, but I've also often found myself seeking out kind of edges between fields and in the work that I've done. And so in that sense, I think Jessica and I share that and this project has been a continuation in ways. I'd worked as an anthropologist in a family medicine department before. Um, and I think this last spring and summer, um, the, the largest projects I've been coming off of grew out of my doctoral research around environmental risk and spending time um, doing ethnographic research um, in a town in, on the east coast of the United States that was grappling with what a large asbestos waste site meant for the local community, for urban planning. Um, and I very quickly saw um, racial tensions there around whose concerns were being heard um, and watching play out even well-intentioned community involvement processes that still sort of certain groups were defining what the problem was and what the solutions were. And um, that set me kind of sort of shifted my trajectory a bit into wanting to do not just writing for others in my field, but thinking how could you use tools from these fields that we have as a space for close listening and attending and um, bringing firsthand accounts from oral history, from ethnography to use to reframe public discussions. Like if these community meetings I was watching aren't the place to talk about how asbestos risk is intertwined with local history and um, you know structural racism and access to safe spaces and all these things, if it's just has to be narrow, then where else do we create those spaces to talk about complex health issues in lived social historic context? And that struck me and I reached out to colleagues at the time to say, hey, what if we wrote this alternate grant and argued for a different approach to science education that was more dialogic? We don't need more fact sheets sent out to community residents. They know this stuff firsthand. Instead, how do we foster different discussions between government um, scientists, health officials, developers, residents using this stuff? And so um, spent a long time in that work uh, funded by NIH and um, later kind of led me, ultimately it was part of where I met Jessica, of led me into exploring working in more of a museum space for a stretch of time and leading a program around um, public scholarship and how to, that started pushing me to learn from my colleagues and experiment how we could do public programming online and in person where you work with archival materials and oral history materials um, 
to kind of invite people in to think about their own lived experience and how do we ask mm. different questions of our lived experience and how do we listen differently. Um, and I found myself when suddenly home last March, um, thinking of that material again and almost wanting to visit with my interview transcripts. I was struck by how like spent years talking with people about risk and uncertainty and how, yeah. how you handle these. Um, but I was also struck by how, um, it, you know, I was forced to live that that much more now and forced to make everyday decisions without a sense of full information. You know, the little stuff like, are we washing food that comes into the house or what are we doing with packages or where are we going or not going? Like, you you know, just day to day are deciding through behavior. And that, again, pushed all of those ideas that, um, you know, there's just like rational processes for managing risk and all this. So I found myself thinking and living that at the time. And then, as Jessica said, I think it will remain a powerful experience and one I'm still processing of last summer when we had that, both that suddenness and shock. And as you were pointing out, I think um, part of that feeling was, wait, there's stuff we've put a lot of ourselves into the, you know, intentionally into the work that we're building and wanting spaces to still build that and contribute. And we started talking about realizing that creative need and also talking about um, what did it mean, what did we really want to do and build in this moment? And now, and what did it mean to start that unaffiliated and kind of different relationship to institutions? And I have to say, I was surprised. I think initially we had all sorts of thoughts, fears, experiences about that, but there was also something really beautiful about the directness of the two of us saying, you know what I really, my instinct is, this is what's the next step. And this is something, how do we bring um, the work we've been doing into what we're seeing, experiencing, and hearing in this moment. And there was a certain momentum for then writing some small grants and mm -hmm. grateful to find those funded, you know, initial support from the LePage Center at Villanova, from the National Council of Public History, and just getting this resonance of acting from that place of an intentionality that um, started showing me two ways that, you know, institutional support is helpful in ways, but there was also suddenly unencumbered by trying to guess what, you know, a bunch of other what you know invisible people in the institution might want or not want and all of that instead we could just kind of um take next steps or, or explore what really seemed needed and she and i had worked together in programming we'd partnered when she was um starting to share more work from her research conducting these oral history interviews with scientists with disabilities mm -hmm. and that started teaching me talking through with her what she was noticing there um started familiarizing me a bit too with the whole world of disability studies and was really exciting. Um, we were chatting before how even things like that seemed mundane of she started bringing up based on observations of interviewees, what are even the assumptions we have built into the history of science about, um, you know, seeing as knowing or assumptions about which senses are the ways to directly know the world and what she was finding from these brilliant blind scientists who then advised us and worked with us too. And you start pulling this thread and seeing wow, these assumptions that are built into and ordering so much of our world or how things are designed or our spaces laid out. And that has been really exciting and kind of started expressing things that I think interested me in medical anthropology from years ago and turned into some of this project. Well, a couple of quick things before we hear about the, a little bit more about the project. One is, um, can you direct us, in, or I can put it up um, on Twitter later, how we find some of the previous work you've been mentioning? Because I think people listening and hearing you describe it will want to find it. Um, disability scientists who are coping with disability and doing great science. And then, Britt, your project, 
the AMBLO project, which is a tremendous project. Um, can you just tell us where we might find some of these, um, you know, whatever you've got published or that's out there circulating? Britt, do, yes. is there somewhere we can find yours? Yeah, so um, the the Science and Disability Project was was at the Science History Institute, and I think you can probably still find information about it on their website, um, which I can share in the chat. And I'm trying to bring up for the Reach Ambler project. Um, we made one landing page of a website that I just added um, the link into. And I can also add a short piece for the American Anthropologist um, and a webinar for um, NIEHS that we gave talking about theater and um, oral history and talk as a way of exploring, opening up dialogues around complex issues. Yes, and anyone yeah, that's who great. in breastfeeding, I do have a book on it. <laughs> you can see a couple of struggles with my internet here. So I think if, hopefully if everybody can hear me okay, but certainly they can see on screen these different links just to the work. And I'll bring them up throughout the, throughout the rest of the conversation. Um, so great way to start because I think I do, you know, there's one other thing, Britt, that you said that I wanted to um, just underline, and I hadn't quite thought of it until you said it, but the degree to which everyone had to operate with uncertainty, still is operating with uncertainty, um, but early on particularly, um, seems like an unexplored ground for empathy for with among communities who operate today uh, are struggling with I'm just going to go off the camera for a minute and just uh, be in the audio people who every day in America can you both hear me okay just double checking that okay thank you um, are dealing with these kinds of uncertainties about risk and about toxins and often that's treated as, well, that's people who have environment, they deal with environmental justice problems and that's not most of us. Uh, but of course it is most of us, it's just unacknowledged or unknown. And I think Britt, your point about the fact that you, that was a, a, an aha moment for you is for me an aha moment at this time, sort of listening to you talk about that. So thank you for that observation. Uh, let me just shift over now. I'd like to hear a little bit more about the, the project itself, the Beyond Better project and maybe um, Jessica you could start and then Britt bring you in just um, kind of early ideas about it how you began to deploy it some of the methods that you use sure I think um, gosh it's just been it's been both a very long time and also it's like we talk about it almost every day so it's like constantly evolving in some ways but um, yeah the beyond better project I think initially we as we'd been talking about, you know, we've had these impulses to continue building on the momentum that we had um, built up in working together um, on our previous project, especially the Science and Disability Project. And um, we thought, well, 
where are people who are surviving COVID-19? Like, where are their stories? We're not really seeing a lot of this stuff out there. We're seeing a lot of numbers and statistics and like quantitative data. Um, there were starting to be a few like uh, op-ed type pieces uh, penned here and there by people who had had a COVID infection and then um, experienced either never-ending symptoms or symptoms that went away but came back or you know all sorts of different experiences that were coming forward and we thought why don't we just talk to people um, do interviews with people who have had this experience and because we are wanting to reach uh, an audience like a public audience with this how do we then take those stories, those, you know, these oral history interviews that can be two, three hours long, hundreds and hundreds of transcript of pages of transcripts. How do we just take um, some of the meaning and um, important parts out of that story and curate it in a way that is accessible and reaches a wide audience and effectively communicates important things about people's experiences um, and so we were actually really inspired, you know, uh, going way back now, like a year, year and a half ago, um, by another project that actually is uh, studying experiences of motherhood through a design history lens called Designing Motherhood. Um, and so Britt and I were really inspired by this project because they've built up this really amazing community on Instagram. Um, and because of their design lens, they have a very visual storytelling format for the work that they're doing. Um, and they're doing a whole lot of really interesting things, including exhibits in real life, um, a book and all of these things. But they're the sort of basis of their work was on Instagram. And so we thought Instagram's pretty pretty easy to set up. Um, we both were, were Instagram users on our own. And so we thought this could be a good platform um, for curating these interviews that we want to do with COVID survivors. And then in terms of the visual aspects, we were like, it, it was kind of a uh, another thing that had come from the Science and Disability Project was I had been teaching a class to some undergraduates around the Science and Disability Project. And I was using oral history transcripts from that project in my teaching. And I asked my students to choose a transcript and curate it into some sort of final exhibit as their project, uh, end of semester project. And one of my students did this very simple, but just so incredibly, um, like striking project where she broke the person's life down into like four significant moments. And then she illustrated three kind of three panel graphics um, for each of those moments. So a total of 12 drawings out of this like 300 page oral history transcript. But, um, you know, the effect was just really, really awesome. And it conveyed like really complex and nuanced and emotionally rich moments in this person's life. 
And so that had always been kind of sitting in the back of my head is like, this is such an amazing way to get oral histories out there to the public. Like, because again, you know, I think oral history is amazing. Um, but even if you keep it in like an audio format or a video format, you know, the chances that people are, are going to want to sit there and listen to a three hour long interview are, are slim. Um, so in terms of just thinking in that mindset, we, we went from, you know, wanting to do these oral history interviews with COVID survivors. We want to put stuff on Instagram and cultivate a public audience and engage with people. Let's work with artists to create illustrations of the oral history interviews that we're conducting. And let's, you know, be let's like engage with disability justice principles um, and hire or as much as we can, you know, compensate artists, disabled artists um, from the community to, to do this work. So um, the bulk of the LePage Center funding that we were able to get for this project that helped us get this off the ground is really being repurposed back into honoraria for uh, the disabled artists that we um, work with on this. And I think that that's kind of the nuts and bolts of, of what we want to do. We want, and the sort of second layer sort of underpinning all of that is the historical component um, because a historian of medicine, um, you know, I really wanted to think about this relationship between disability and epidemics more broadly and to say, you know, I know as a historian of medicine that there are times in the past when we've had other epidemics, what what did the relationship between disability and these past epidemics look like? And that sort of immediately drew my attention to the mid 20th century polio epidemics um, because polio survivors who were often young children many of them lived with acquired disabilities as a result of their encounter with polio. And many of those children grew up to become leaders of the late 20th century disability rights movement. And so that's just like this amazing story of the way that an epidemic can have this like long-term ripple effect that no one could have foreseen um, that the people that were encountering polio, surviving, acquiring disabilities would go on to sort of redefine citizenship rights and civil rights in, in the second half of the 20th century. And so by looking at that and juxtaposing stories from polio survivors and from the um, disability rights movement with what we're experiencing now with COVID um, and doing it all on this public platform on Instagram through mm -hmm. art and storytelling, what can we sort of get people to start thinking about and how can, what sort of questions can we get people to start asking that no one is really asking yet about what's gonna happen um, when we are finally sort of looking behind us at COVID, what is COVID gonna have sort of wrought in the ripple effects that we aren't even really aware of yet.
just a reminder, just a reminder that, that you're listening, listening to, to COVID calls, COVID calls and I'm talking, and I'm talking with Jessica Marcucci and Brian Albert. Albert. And we're talking about this amazing project of theirs, Beyond Better Experiences of Recovery, Disability, and Politics in, in Pandemics. Um, Britt, I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about the, the project as, as well. I think Jessica's given us a great overview of it. One of the things I would underline there that's really impressive to me is that it's not only you have one mind as you're forming an archive, an archival project, mm -hmm. so you're making an archive for the future, but you're also seems deeply engaged with the idea of the production of the archive as itself a form of mutual aid, perhaps even. We haven't used that word yet. Um, and very much in, enmeshed in the idea of um, disability justice as an in sort of informing framework for how you're go going about this. Um, so it's working in the moment and it's working for the future and it's engaged with the past. That's an awful lot to take on in one mm -hmm. project and that's why I love it. Uh, could you say a little bit more about that, Britt? I'm particularly interested in the ways people you've been working with, um, how they come to it how how they see it addressing some of those those concerns are they struck by that historical resonance across time where do they see themselves fitting in so we're as wonderful question and naming all of that i think um and i want to make sure to come back to talking about how central process has been for us this whole time and i think you're you're hitting on that we're as jessica mentioned we're sort of still newly building. So we're at a stage of um, just starting to um, conduct first interviews for the project and um, still reaching out to further artists and um, you know having initial meetings just in this last week or two. So um, some of that we'll be able to share more of and know more of later. Um, but it also underscores one of the things we've been talking about recently is realizing we want to also find spaces for reflection or even interviewing one another, people who join the team to keep making that reflection and process and how we're each um, positioned and things are unfolding part of the scope of what we're doing and what we're talking about. I think um, early on, it both, it, you know, we were checking in with each other about what were we needing um, in all sorts of ways when we started this project and where we were at. Um, and I think, you know, we've both been really struck by and reading about um, from the bits we've been learning um, from a disability justice perspective, from disability studies, from scholars and activists that we follow and, you know, continue to learn are just enmeshed and still newly learning from in a lot of ways. Um, I think that makes me think a lot about our work practices and access to resources and how expertise and prestige work and all of these things. And um, so we're maybe fumbling our way through that in some ways or open to learning as we go, but it's been a core part of how we've thought about the process or when we um, have gotten small grants knowing, okay, it's really important to us that this could be a way, these could be flexible sorts of um, forms of collaboration and who might that be a fit for and how do we have those conversations as we go. Just to stay with that for a second, um, maybe the, you know, I've been trying to follow the disability justice movement in this time mm -hmm. and have spoken to some other guests about it. I had Amy Hamry on and, and some others who talked with Amy Slayton about some of these issues. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to flatten it as one movement because it's not, but just can you report a little bit, Jessica, what are some of the objectives that you've seen sort of rising to the surface in, in this time 
from people who are really out in the activist space here? Because I want to get some of that on the table because it helps us more clearly understand, you know, sort of your work as a as an intervention with that as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's just there's uh, there's so many voices out there um, advocating for for disability visibility, disability justice, disability rights. Um, and I think, you know, but at the end of the day, I think what the pandemic has really highlighted is just the extent to which, and this sort of gets back to, to like our project's focus on, on sort of the healthcare system um, and the ways that uh, disability studies and a disability lens is desperately needed in our healthcare system um, because there's such, there's such inequality and such ableism underpinning um, the way healthcare is delivered. And so this has been, uh, I think, a primary um, point that many people out there who are, who are speaking out about these things have, have come back to again and again. I mean, in the beginning days of the pandemic, there were fears about, you know, rationing care and decision making happening based on ableist ideas about whose lives have higher quality, more value. Um, there were concerns out there about people who are who routinely are uh, vent users. You know, if they showed up at the hospital, concern that their vent would be taken from them and reallocated to a COVID patient. Um, so there was just a lot of, I think it brought to the fore a lot of conversation around the ableism and sort of rationing care ideas. Um, now I think that we've seen the beginning of the rollout of the vaccinations. That's been another big issue is sort of how, um, how is ableism structuring vaccine policy and, um, and who's getting the vaccine. Um, I mean, I think there's been other really interesting things that have percolated up in people's voices as well about, um, you know, the reliance on on care workers um, who may or may not have been, you know, wearing masks when they were not, when they were out, you know, in their other lives. Um, people who had no op no other option but to rely on care workers that were actively infected with COVID because they had no backup, because their backup got COVID too, you know? So it just, you know, it kind of brought to the surface all of these ways in which people are kind of left to figure things out on their own and are often actively, you know, having to struggle just to access the same kind of care that um, people who are not disabled aren't really familiar with. And so I think it just kind of brought to the fore the kind of inequality that is so pervasive and, and part of um, built into the, the sort of healthcare system when it comes to disability. And Britt, those, those narratives that Jessica is describing, you're already, you're seeing those emerging in the work yet the kinds of discussions and interviews that you're you're doing it may be too soon for you to really want to talk about them at that level of detail but i'd be fascinated to know if what we're reading in the news is also and hearing in the activist community is also already sort of legible in the work you're doing 
That's a great question. We're we're too soon to have our new interviews to to share from, but um, I will say it seems like some of that is starting to come up, even in preliminary conversations. Um, you know, I think of some of what we've seen um, disability advocacy uh, folks raising are also both that injustice and hope that now a lot of things people were patient advocacy groups were working on for years with little traction, suddenly this wider interest in understanding um, things that can follow from viral infections and complex immune syndromes people have been grappling with, um, also dismissal in the healthcare system and ways that ambiguous or new or disorders that aren't fully understood, um, the ways people have long shared um, gaslighting and systemic ways those are, you know, People are just sent, you know, described as like, oh, this is in your head or this isn't real, this is malingering. Um, and then years later, there's greater understanding of the condition and, and finally that there. Um, and so even in preliminary conversations, hearing folks wonder, okay, are you only interested in what if there was a test or there wasn't a test or the doctor said I had COVID, but, um, you know, we didn't then get that measured. Does this count in those ways? And, you know, kind of that awareness that that, that, that shows up there. Yeah. And just to say a little bit more about the the dynamics of doing a project like this, Brett, a few minutes ago, you were talking about your previous work in Ambler and your insight that what was not needed was another researcher with a recorder creating an archive that then maybe gets used or doesn't, mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't seem vital to the lives of the people engaged in the place. Mm -hmm. um, strikes me that both of you have taken that insight on board here in the way you're thinking about about this project, but it raises some interesting methodological, well, interesting, may not be doing it justice, ch really challenging methodological issues here. You're asking personal questions. You're also creating an archive for the future, and you're also mm -hmm. setting up interactions that you can't necessarily predict um, mm -hmm. how they will go, which is the excitement of it. But Britt, can you say a little bit more about just how you think through something like that? I guess I'm asking you to give away the secret recipe. So don't tell me everything. <laughs> but I, but it, I mean, yeah. for researchers out there who are listening to this and saying, okay, I'm going to do a project like that, talk a little bit more about what they should keep in mind. Yeah. I'm so glad you named that. And it's, as you say, a huge thing. Um, I've found myself, partly since those experiences in Ambler and even before, um, I end up getting invited to speak on um, research methods and design and how you, you know, design research, especially for folks in health research areas. And I find I have shifted those conversations well away from what they think they're asking for, which is like, what's, can you give me a formula? What is the, the way to ask a qualitative interview or to do this thing? And instead sharing the stories of that research and the ways it pushed me too to ask what questions are we asking and aren't we and why and who is benefiting and who is not and how what are the ways our work is getting employed and towards what ends you know even seeing there that um attention at looking at environmental risk the ways some of that work was being used to further kind of publicly talk about this neighborhood as risky and blighted and all of these vaguely and not so vaguely um, racialized language and the ways that was impacting displacement and gentrification. So that made me come face to face directly with that and think, okay, how do I not ignore that and my my role and my complicity as a researcher in these spaces? And 
in those interviews, um, which I can look back to, I remember going and people saying every decade or so researchers come and they say they really care about the community and they want to hear from us, but only if you can tell them about mesothelioma and what fits directly in their narrow interests and can help that research agenda. And, you know, we're not so sure that these cancers I'm dealing with and my family aren't partly related. And what about flooding and police um, harassment and all the lack of community space, all these things tangled in. And so my basic advice has there been that methodologically it's important to how do we design research where we increase the chance that we will come face to face with those things we hadn't anticipated but need to be acknowledging. And when you do, what are the methods for not writing that off as this is outside my scope or this is just an outlier or this is kind of off topic, but how do you respond there? Because that's one option and that's the way a lot of work operates. Another is to say, oh, somebody is, they're showing me something that is really important here that I'm maybe not fully aware of that is central. How do I pull on that a bit further and understand what is here? And so that's kind of big of sort of what's been underlying for the span. Um, for this project, and maybe Jessica has further thoughts too, but um, I think it's part of where we had consciously, as she was describing, reached out to um, pulling on our backgrounds and reaching out to oral history and methods of listening that are trying, are a bit more um, co-produced, how you make an interview with someone where you're really listening for what is raised and not raised and scaffolding that together um, and being also aware of our own interests and agenda, but not having that be the one thing that leads. Um, I've also felt like it's really powerful both in um, anthropological and ethnographic work in the past, um, and then the intersection linking that with arts and here with oral history. When we wanna understand beyond better here, the ripple effects of a pandemic in the mundane daily aspects of lives as they're actually lived and in the broad scale, how do these link up with broader politics and um, you know, policy and disability rights kind of changes. I think we both see a lot of power there for listening to those details and then figuring out our job is partly how do we work with the right people to curate and express those so that um, I, I think handing over some of the power of framing all of it, it's less a move to how do we work to um, make a name and name, this is our new term for how this works or here's our theoretical intervention and this is like the thing that's going on. And how do we um, sort of make space or surface um, some of the insights and questions and tensions that people are raising, even a mosaic in a way? And then also how do we create spaces that invite people to pause with those and to listen and attend? Um, I saw in the work with oral history and theater before how um, even did interviews with people about that experience, about how showing up to see oral histories and aspects of them performed mm -hmm. invited a different relationship to, you know, you're invited to feel things and to engage with experience in a different way than if you went to the local gathering, you know, meeting spot to sit across a table and debate um, risk assessment strategies. There's a difference. And I think we've got that hunch and from Jessica's work too, that there's a real possibility for uh, bringing together these methods and and arts in a way that how do we create spaces and programs and places that invite reflection and invite that pausing so that I think it's these many layers. We're trying to do that when we design interviews and when we conduct them and in our own work, but we're also trying to model that and invite it for folks who join us in all of these different ways to kind of, how do you pause with us and how do you, attend closely to what's happening, not just the 
framings that we've inherited out there or the ways things get covered in sound bites. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today with Britt Dahlberg and Jessica Martucci about their um, phenomenal new project, Beyond Better. And I wanted to, we have a few minutes left, um, come back to something that's really closer to where we started. Um, Jessica, um, bring you in on this first. And it's, you know, so part of what we're discovering um, through this pandemic is it's a disaster with many layers. And for many people would talk about the United States who are dealing with the daily disaster of the United States healthcare system, people with disability, this just adds uh, more onto that. But, but also, this is a time in which we don't know COVID-19 is provoking new disability conditions for people, the sort of long COVID of which we're only beginning to learn the implications of that. And so I want to I want to ask you about that sort of at one level just how you how you think about doing a project where people are not sure yet if they should define themselves as disabled. Um because it means well it means a lot of things, but it strikes me that even just asking that question. So somebody's had covid, I you see this every day. Oh, I had covid, it was was bad or it wasn't bad. I'm over it now. <laughs> but that it we're still in the middle of this disaster. So I wonder how you're coping with that in terms of your project, that you're, you're wanting to interact with people also who may just not know how to define themselves yet as part of this project. Yeah, and I think that is actually, you know, exactly what we want to be doing. Um, I think we want to be sort of capturing what is coming as it's forming around us, right? Like we want to, I mean, I think every every day I see more signs out there of, you know, the impact that long COVID or uh, whatever we're going to end up calling people who survive COVID and have long-term effects, um, you know, signs that they're out there in some ways, maybe, and maybe forging new paths and, and coming up with new kinds of of experiences and, and ways of describing them and, and ways of finding meaning in them. And then there's, there's also evidence that people are, are following the path of, of disability uh, communities online. And, you know, I, I saw a tweet not that long ago of, of someone kind of saying like, welcome mm -hmm. to all of the new uh, members of our disability community. And, you know, it's, it's going to be okay. And like, so there's kind of these existing, it's it's just an interesting moment because um, disability, the disability community has now established a really thriving several, I mean, many communities, there's many disability communities, but there's many thriving places online on social media platforms um, where these communities talk to each other, um, provide information, provide shared language, help people make meaning out of their experiences. Um, and so there's in some ways a lot of scaffolding out there for people who are maybe coming out of a COVID infection and are having long-term effects to kind of say, well, oh, maybe, maybe this is my experience. Like maybe this is how I'm going to define myself. But you know, we don't know. And I think that's kind of the excite one of the exciting things about doing this project right now is kind of, you know, looking at all of the stuff that's swirling around out there and trying to get a bit of a snapshot 
in terms of, you know, this is what it looks like 2021 20, in 10 years. What is this information going to help us know differently if it if we didn't have it? Um, so, yeah, so I think I think it's that's what makes it kind of one of the exciting things uh, about the project for me is that kind of unknown of what it is we're actually even capturing. But it, there's also a political volatility of uh, to that, which I really appreciate. And Britt, it comes back to, to we were chatting earlier you know, about your discussions um, and thinking about, you know, am I at risk or not? Mm -hmm. um, am I disabled or not from from COVID? And people are having to think about that that binary is not working. Yeah. That's I powerful, would, right? Yeah. I was thinking even of the story you read at the start and one person saying, you know, the lead in this story saying it could have been me. And then this talk too of others feeling that safety, you know, the ways disabilities made invisible or creating distance so that we can make that illusion to feel like, oh, well, it couldn't be me or it's just over there or the ways all of the social practices um, and framing that we use to mark, well, it's over there that there's environmental risk, but I can be protected and safe over here. And um, I think this is, th that's a huge part of this um, project is what are the ways that that illusion is breaking down and what are the possibilities there for starting to look a bit more clearly and, um, you know, more connected with more connection. Just um, coming up towards the end of our discussion here, but I wanted to, there's one other sort of note I wanted to make sure we we sound a little bit more loudly, which is that interdisciplinarity gets talked about a lot. Um, and that the way you're using it means, seems to me, means a lot more than bringing a historian and an anthropologist yeah. together. I mean, I like that kind of interdisciplinarity. I do that a lot. And I say, oh, I did some interdisciplinary. <laughs> you're, this is a lot stretchier than that. Mm -hmm. um, pitfalls, but also rewards of doing that, Britt? Delighted it. I mean, it's probably tied with it's it's involved um, going after things that feel meaningful to do and building them with less of a mind to um, how to make a really clear career narrative or which department precisely to label and fit myself in. Um, you know, I think I've ended up feeling somewhat outsider in a lot of places, but realizing also I've thought that out because I think there's not only bridge work we can do, but I'm excited to how do we bring together reflection and how do we also open up the black box of fields and make public spaces where we can say, you know, as an anthropologist, I was exploring this and noticing this thing and this question came up and how does that ask, let us ask better questions. Um, no, Jessica, what do, what do you think? Yeah. We have we have concrete method discussions or noticing, oh, I have these assumptions about interviews and like, what's your process for oral history? And oh, stuff. yeah. But, yeah, I know you must. I mean, the careful way that you've gone about designing this study, I, I, the reason I ask this question is because mm -hmm. interdisciplinarity doesn't mean you get five different people in a room and everybody says, hey, this is how I do it. And then you go do a study. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's five times the work. But the way you're describing it is also opens up seemingly manifestly greater possibilities for finding. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, yeah, the collaboration is is the the key i think like brit and i talk a lot about the project all the time and we you know are very i think good at bringing forward our our expertise but then we're also both very open-minded about you know 
it, I don't even think it's a matter of like, oh, we should use the history methods here and the anthropology methods here. It's like, you know, through this collaboration, I feel like we're we're kind of coming to th- to to things in a whole new way um, that is neither really one thing or the other, but is like something new, which I think is really exciting. I just want to remind folks that you can find this project at uh, beyondbetter.org. And I'm assuming, but correct me if I'm wrong, people want to engage with this project. They can find you through that as a, as a portal to learn more about it or even to participate. And that the transcript of this discussion will be made available after for anybody who wants to um, engage with, with that as, as well. Um, we're up on time, but any final anything we missed or anything else you wanted to add, Britt or Jessica, as we close out? I don't think so. Just thank you so much for, for having us here for this conversation. It's been really fun. Well, and I want to acknowledge also the LePage Center uh, because they've been funding um, lots of really great projects and we've had the chance to talk with some researchers here in the last couple of weeks. I'm just putting up the Instagram. Great. And that's a great reminder. I lost your audio for a second there, but just wanted to say how um, how beautiful and how important it's been the couple of orgs that early in the pandemic really were flexible and thought, we have small bits of money, what do we do with that? And how do we support folks in public history and in these in-between spaces? Um, and it, I was so struck by that, that flexibility of orgs saying, hey, we don't know quite what to do here. We don't have the tools, but we know others do. And how do we support that work? And it shows me the kind of flexibility I think we wanted to build in our own project of having a responsiveness um, in this moment and um, showing up that way. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think I was just typing a note, but I think that this kind of um, funding has been so important for helping to support uh, humanities scholarship in this moment around the pandemic. Um, when there's huge pots of money out there for scientific and yeah. even so, some social science research, um, that there's been this this funding out there for um, people to interject a humanistic lens has been, I think, really, really important. Sorry, I'm once again discovering a little bit of technological uh, shortcomings here today, but please keep that in mind, funders. Uh, of course, the <laughs> science research is tremendous, but humanists can do a lot with a little, and as you can see from our discussion in this project, it stretches back in time, it deals with the present in creative ways and will have implications in the future, how we're gonna understand this pandemic. I wanna thank my guests today, Jessica Martucci and Britt Dahlberg, and wish you um, great success with this project. And Thank you very much for having us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a pleasure to speak with you. And please join me tomorrow, everybody, at 5 o'clock. I'll be talking with Kevin Cruz about politics, history, and COVID-19. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow at 5 o'clock.